we worked on the confidence. We talked about the paths of leadership, that it actually was there and these are the avenues you can tap into. And then the third ingredient, which I think was um, the best ingredient we could offer, was we showed them the skills they already had. You know, if, if I had to get out on a boat on the water, I would be petrified. Yet these women are out there in terrifying conditions. They're having to think so quickly on their feet. They're excellent communicators. They're having to strategize about what their next role is. Their resilience is unparalleled. They had all the leadership skills of our top leaders that they weren't able to apply them necessarily to the workforce or to a club environment. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a champion of great ideas, an engaging leadership coach for sport event professionals and creator of the ICC Method. She has a Bachelor of Creative Arts in Theatre from the University of Wollongong in Australia and is the Chisholm Institute Certified Trainer and Assessor. Our guest loves being involved in major sporting events with roles as venue manager at the 2007 World Swimming Championships in Melbourne, event acquisition manager for the Victorian Major Events Company, head of city operations manager at the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games, and the strategic business management at Limelight Sports. As a busy entrepreneur, she has founded Like Minds Create. She leads the Event School Global and AmandaJacobs.com.au. In her spare time, she is the general manager of Blair Gowrie Yacht Squadron. I have the absolute pleasure of introducing an empathetic and very creative leader who is passionate about encouraging more women into leadership roles empowering people through the event show podcast and spending quality time with her three young children amanda jacobs amanda welcome to the show wow as always what an introduction you are you have a gift for opening your podcast and thank you for the best start to my day that i think i've had in a while Oh, Amanda, you're very welcome and you have such a, a unique story which uh, we look forward to sharing today. Let's start with taking a trip down memory lane. Where did you grow okay. up and what fascinated your curious mind during your formative years? So I grew up in Albury. Some may call that Albury-Wodonga, but I was definitely on the Albury side of the river. I grew up on a farm and went to a school called Scots in Albury, which it's only recently that I have reflected back on that experience and almost been able to understand why I have straddled uh, the creative industries through theatre and sport. Um, the school puts such an emphasis on, on both theatre productions and they weren't your average school productions. They were you know, almost uh, London theatre productions, the effort that went into them. 
as well as sport. And so it wasn't unusual for, say, the captain of the first 11 cricket team to play the lead role in our annual theatre production. It was given the same weight and emphasis and love by the, the whole school community. And so now, um, I'm not going to tell you my age, but all this time later, I'm like, I really now understand why I've been able to almost zigzag between those two industries. Yeah, brilliant. So did you find yourself naturally gravitating towards leadership roles or did you find this talent a little bit later on in life? I definitely found it later on in life. I, it's, I think, taken a lifetime career to really embrace my leadership style and to understand myself and what I bring to a leadership role. I'm curious to know you, you know, so during those times, obviously leadership wasn't at the limelight then. What was your first ever job and how did you find it? Uh, my first ever job was for a company called Peter Ricks Management and they uh, were an event management company. Obviously, I was their production manager. It was my first real job out of university and we did all the big um, events for Toyota as an example and Lexus, so these big productions and national roadshows around the country. And uh, Peter had a unique approach to work. Uh, average was never good enough. Everything had to be at excellent. And the man had such a presence that once you'd set the room up and you'd work with all your, your team to bring this show to life, Peter would almost walk in at the last minute and you'd be shaking in your boots going, is he going to like my work? Um, which was both a terrifying and the most unique learning environment to, I guess, approach everything you do with, is this good enough? It needs to be excellent. And uh, he also taught me very early on about the, the client experience and the customer experience and being able to provide provide something to both that was memorable. You know, uh, there's so many production agencies out there that Peter had an approach of, we're number one for a reason. We do things very, very well, so. Oh, I love that approach. So your, your career has involved three dynamic industries of theater, sport, and entrepreneurship. And you talk about your yeah. first job there being in event management. But before you did that, what was the inspiration behind studying creative arts and theatre? I was really fortunate. I always knew from a young age what I wanted to do, which was theatre. I had been surrounded by theatre growing up, um, both at school and with some family friends. So I you know, had these wonderful experiences of being able to do work experience at Belvoir Street Theatre in Sydney. and. Once I finished school, I had a gap year and did uh, an exchange with the Hot Shoe Shuffle Theatre Show in London. So it was kind of in my bones, but I was also faced with that question when you get to the end of your schooling, but what am I going to make a career of? And everyone around you is saying, well, you won't make any money in theatre. Uh, so I took a gap year to really think about what I wanted to do and loud and clear, I followed what I knew would make me happy and I followed that path of doing what I love which at that time was theatre. Yeah. So, so what did you know the skills that theatre taught you help with your future leadership roles? Uh, it's everything. It's been my foundation. Uh, you know, when you are putting on a, and producing a theatre show it's all about uh, collaboration, getting the most out of the skill set in that room, creating an ensemble that is high performing. It's understanding 
how that theatre show is going to be able to connect best with an audience. And something that's dawned on me recently is uh, the beauty of studying theatre is that we had a really early insight into what emotional intelligence is Uh and being able to read people's emotions and understand why they're making certain decisions. So now, uh, you know, if I'm sitting in a leadership capacity with a team member and, you know, we've got a difficult conversation, often I can read what they're thinking before the words come out and can help shape that conversation. I think that's when I've worked out that empathy was what I lead with, that's when I became the leader I guess I am today with, with confidence. It's, a, it's kind of a groundbreaking moment in your career when you f- finally understand what is that core aspect of, of you as a leader. You know, for me, I found it was I'm a learner is my number one strength. So teaching people and coaching people, no matter what role I was in, really brought that through. So finding that empathy is, is a great moment in your career. How did you get involved in working on major sporting events? Working on major events, I unfortunately missed the boat with Sydney Olympic Games and through no one's fault but myself, it was probably the first sign of imposter syndrome showing up for me where I simply thought I am too young in the industry, I don't have the skill set that they want to um, employ, so hey, I just won't put my name up for it. So I continued working on um, for event companies in Sydney. And it wasn't until uh, the 2006 Commonwealth Games in Melbourne that I had obviously worked through all of that and thought, what am I doing? This is the most amazing opportunity on my doorstep. So I applied for a role with um, as a venue operations manager in a cluster team there, mainly working on what we call Jeff's Shed, the Melbourne Exhibition Centre. Amazing experience that I was hooked. We talk about a games junkie. I was absolutely a games junkie by the end of that um, event. <laughs> so working on major events has many layers of complexity. So for you, what strategies mm-hmm. did you use to manage multiple stakeholders when you're under intense pressure? I think it always comes back to people skills and being able to understand different points of view. Um, you're right, it has so many different layers and different teams, you know, everything from security to logistics to catering to the athletes village and, and the sport body and the sport managers. So for, you know, working with a sport manager as an example, their prerogative is delivering the best field of play experience for the athletes who have trained their whole life for this moment. So to understand that perspective and to buy into it, knowing that it is, we're all delivering on the same goal. Um, I think when you come at a conversation like that, it makes conversations and planning really straightforward. Um, You have to take your own personal objectives out of it almost and just think of the bigger picture. Um, And I think major events have a unique ability to bring one team together so that when you are meeting with all different departments, they all understand the objective and the greater picture. So you went from being a venue manager at the Swimming World Championships to a far greater role at the 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games, where you were organizing both logistics and infrastructure on a mass scale. Can you take Mm -hmm. us through what your role incorporated in London and why is it such an important component of a successful Games? 
So uh, what you might not know is I actually started out in London as a project manager. So I was responsible for six different venues, including Wimbledon and Lords. And a lot of people say to me, well, what did you need to do for Wimbledon? It runs a tennis you know, event quite successfully every year. And essentially what it is, if you, if you turn that venue upside down and you shook everything out of it, and then you had to put it all back in for the games, there's a lot of logistics that needs to go into that and planning, obviously. So I spent the first two years as project manager on those venues, coordinating teams to deliver the planning. Um, and I think by the end of those two years, I was feeling that I had more to offer and I wanted a greater challenge. And around that time, they uh, appointed a head of games operation, um, a man known as Doug Arnott, who came from the States at the time and had a huge wealth of experience. And I don't know if any of your listeners have had this experience, but I do from time to time where I will meet a person and my instant thought is, I need to work for you because I recognise immediately that there is so much to learn from that person and I wanted to be in that sphere of influence. So one morning, uh, I'm getting into the lifts at Canary Wharf, um, which was at that time a massive banking district and we were sharing the building with um, a number of bankers. Uh, so you get to the lift and usually there's you know loads and loads of people and it's a bit of a fight to get to the top. On this morning, it was just Doug and I and so we met at the bottom and I thought to myself, I've got 19 floors to convince this man that I need to work for him. Um, so I summoned all the courage I could. I was kind of shaking in my boots and had that sick, tummy, sick feeling in my stomach. But we got into the lift and I introduced myself and I talked to Doug about what I was doing. And I said, quite literally, Doug, I'd really like to work with you. How can I help? And he said, okay, uh, come and see me. So... That led to a discussion with him about uh, setting up the city operations team, which hadn't been developed yet. So I was responsible for putting a the initial team together to engage with 30, I think it was 33 London boroughs, could be 32, I'll be corrected, uh, on their Olympic plans. So for example, Greenwich um, had their own Olympic vision of what they would like to do for their residents and the significant venues they had in place there. Uh, city operations was charged with making sure that the Olympic activities worked seamlessly with the government and local um, activities that were planned uh, so that the buses for the athletes could get in and out, that our security wasn't hampered uh, and that everyone had the best possible experience. There's a couple of other things I'd love to unpack, uh, unpack there a little bit. First one is you did the ultimate elevator pitch and obviously highly successful. So it does work for those skeptics out there that hear the elevator pitch and go, yeah, yeah, it actually does work. Yeah. Uh, secondly, it's amazing, you know, because everyone just thinks, oh, look, an Olympic Games is just around sport events and it's just, you know, make sure we film those athletes and we get that out to the pitches so people can see it around the world but the whole flow of people, because it's not like a normal event where you might have, say it's a rugby game, where you might have 30,000 people come to an event and they flow in and flow out through public transport, no problems. But when you've got you know, hundreds of thousands of people and you have residents there and you're stopping a nation for a game to occur, those logistical aspects are massive, massive. So. <laughs> Did you have many issues dealing with the local people? 
Uh, there were certainly challenging times. Um, the way I approached it, though, was to really connect people with the bigger picture. And London 2012 was amazing with that. The, the bigger picture was that these games were going to regenerate East London. They were uh, giving people opportunities that would never have had this opportunity before. Um, we were redeveloping quite a derelict part of London and offering a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for people to see athletes up close and personal and to, um, I guess, buy into that unification almost. So it, once you start with the bigger vision, some of those conversations become very easy. And I think there was a very special feeling in London in the lead-up to the Games that everyone came at it from that perspective. Uh, so once you are connected on a, a more of a social and, um, I guess, heartfelt vision, then the logistics tend to flow. So doing business with London, I found, was quite inspiring because most people would turn up to that boardroom table with solutions. Um, I think probably the most challenging times I had was I used to have to go and do a lot of town planning and town hall style meetings and present on the vision of the Games and what was going to happen. And one of those councils was the Royal Borough of Kensington. Uh, and for them to have an Aussie telling them how their Olympic Games was going to unfold, it's probably a bit difficult to get their heads around. So I had to turn up the charm quite a bit in those instances and really um, develop some authentic personal relationships with the councillors and with the um, leaders of that organisation before we would get to that town hall meeting. So I guess it was overall an exercise in, in relationship and stakeholder management. Did you have to be really conscious around the way you frame things from the language you used? I think I took a cautious approach to it. Uh, you know, I, I was an outsider. I was an Australian in um, London delivering their games. And so it was being respectful of the culture and the attitudes they had towards the games um, in all of those conversations and also listening to their ideas. They knew their city far better than I did. So looking back now, what would you say in your opinion are the three kind of major ingredients to creating a successful sporting event of that scale? For me, in my experience, it's been number one, collaboration, um, that you cannot deliver an event of that size without significant buy-in from a variety of stakeholders. Uh, really honouring a creative process through that period of uh, it, having to look outside the square for solutions. Um, you know, if you took Lord's, the Lord's venue as an example, that was a really tricky venue to deliver. And people often question that because, again, they deliver international cricket events. But we were delivering archery and having to turn the venue around three times a day. And the, the slope on Lord's is about one metre. And that's not great for, a, for an archery match. It was also surrounded by um, very wealthy uh, residents. Most of them were lawyers. And so together with the venue and with the local council, we did have to come up with some really creative solutions to deliver that as an Olympic venue. It wasn't a, a textbook venue that we could just roll out. Um, and then relationships. I think working in events, everything always comes back to the relationships you can build with those who you are working with and 
the relationship needs to have um, respect, uh, that, fit, that feeling of you are working towards one goal. So you come off this major high and you got adrenaline flowing for an intense period of time. We're delivering a major sporting event to in 2013, you took on a very different role where you now become general manager of Blair Gowrie Yacht Squadron, which is on the Mornington mm-hmm. Peninsula in Melbourne, Australia. How did you find coping with that change in pace and intensity and size of your team uh, when you moved into that organization? I actually really enjoyed it because it was at the time that my life had changed so significantly. I was um, married by that time, I was starting a family and it wasn't just a general manager of a, of a yacht club, they were going through a major redevelopment, a $20 million redevelopment at the time. So I was having to use the same skills that I had acquired um, through my major events to facilitate an expansion of a marina and uh, the redevelopment of the, the old clubhouse. So it, I found the skills are really transferable. And again, it was working with a committee and um, a number of volunteers and members. So that spirit of collaboration was still there for me. I find the world of sailing really fascinating. You know, on one side, it is this very institutionalized community full of heritage and history. And on the other side, it has this remarkable drive for innovation, curiosity and creativity like we see in the America's Cup. It seems like Blair Gary was very open to change and innovation. Is that what you experienced? Yeah, I think so. I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's almost straddles two worlds where you have to have tremendous respect and appreciation for the history and the traditions of yachting and sailing in the club. Uh, and you are pairing that with innovation and almost this entrepreneurial spirit of how do we connect more people to sailing? How do we make this sport, which has a bit of a reputation to be inaccessible, how do we take that and actually make it available to everyday Aussies? Uh, so in that is a constant work in progress. Um, and I think we have the same challenges that many sports do with trying to capture our youth and keep them within the sport and engaged. Uh, the one thing I've found about sailing, um, which is quite unique and probably skiing is along similar lines where out on the water, you could have three generations competing at the same time. And so I think we always, despite whether we're straddling the history side or the innovation side, we always come back to the fact that this is a family sport and it's a place of connection and it's really meaningful for a lot of people and it holds a special place in many people's hearts down here. And that connects really well with their motto of fi- uh, family, friendship and sailing. Is this what sets Blair Gowrie apart from other sailing clubs or is there something else special there? Oh, I think I'd like to say it does, that we are a family club. And um, as I said, you know, there's uh, some young kids in here who are here with their grandparents and their family has sailed for many, many years to come. But there's also a desire for the club to move with the times and to bring new members into the fold who are embraced and um, you know they get to meet a huge amount of people and try different experiences so there's a sense of uh, mentorship here that is happening but i do think that uh, we're now working with a lot of other clubs around the bay that everyone is trying to take a very similar approach we are just very fortunate in the resources uh, that we have available to us and um, you know i guess 
my whole team is working towards that spirit of innovation. How can we make sailing more accessible? So, um, yeah. Brilliant. So what would you say are your key strengths as a leader? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, empathy is number one for me. I seem to have uh, a unique ability to unite people towards one goal. Uh, I hold an open door policy, which can be a strength and a weakness, but what I've noticed in my time here is that uh, as um, I have encouraged more of an entrepreneurial spirit, that more and more of our staff and our members are coming to me with new ideas. And I think I then bring that sense of collaboration and creativity that we take one idea, well, okay, how do we make that better and bigger? Let's let's talk about this. And the person who's looking at it the second or third time is often, often bringing the best idea to the table. So for me, it's the, I guess my strength is um, comes down to creative collaboration and empathy are probably the big three. So as a leader, we're always sort of being challenged by that. When do we work on the business versus when are we working in the business? So how much for you, how much time would you spend in the business versus on the business? I don't know about you, but I find that so challenging all of the time. And the only thing that works for me is that once a month I have a professional coaching appointment and that is such a placemaker for me that once a month I take time out of the business to work on the business and to reset my goals going forward, to reevaluate how I feel about certain projects and whether they're still meaningful for me, um, to also discuss challenges that have popped up over the past month and talk about how could I approach that better or why did that happen. And um, for me, it's just become part of my leadership journey, a huge, hugely significant part of my leadership journey. There's a constant message we hear from CEOs and, and leaders is, when they do bring in that coach, even though they might be very skilled themselves, when they bring in that coach, that external, that view and that 360 degree view of what we're doing is a major, major help to what we do and be successful. It is. It's really, I think the most valuable thing that's come for me has been an exercise on my values that, you know, when I first started with this particular coach, I went to her and said, I'm working on so many different projects here. I'm really struggling to see the through line to be able to communicate that. And so we did a lot of work on um, my strengths and my values and, you know, what was important to me and what I bring to the table. And the values was the, the through line for me. I understood why I was making certain choices. And now if I start with my values when I'm looking at a new project, if if those values aren't being represented, then I know it's an immediate no. Brilliant. You took a break in 2016 to pursue your entrepreneurial interests. Why did you decide to return as general manager at Blair Gowrie in 2018? Uh, I was asked. <laughs> I had a phone call today and they said, what are you doing? And uh, the business was just ticking along and um, I thought, well, I really do love, there's something special about that place and I understand why our members love it so much. So I went and had a lunch and we, the person who was Commodore at the time was very convincing. Um, and I came back on a trial process and I guess almost fell in love with the place all over again and was able to see some more unique challenges that I could take on 
Um, so it's been a really great journey over the last year. Empowering women in sport is one of your greatest passions. Can you share with our listeners what She Leads is all about? Yeah, sure. Um, it's a program very close to my heart. So when I came back to Blegarry a year ago, just over a year ago, uh, I was really struck by uh, the disparity between our membership base, which you know was about 50% female. We had active female participation on the water, yet we had um, there was no females on the committee. There were very few on any of the subcommittees, and certainly if you went to any member forum, there was never engagement or leadership from a female member in those environments. Yet the contrast for me was that I was often surrounded by this group of young women, say 18 to 30, who were highly accomplished. They've got more degrees than I could ever hope to attain, very articulate and really passionate about their sport. And so I kind of sat back and thought, what what's happening here? Why are these people not transitioning through to leadership within a club and within a sport that is so... Um, important for them. I uh, made a call to a dear friend who is also an executive coach and said, um, Amy, I think I know what's going on here. I suspect that one of them is that they can't see a visible pathway to leadership within their club. Um, For women, it's really, and probably for others too, but I can only speak from my own perspective, that for women, we need to see women doing those roles. We need to see women in leadership to know that that path is available. And the other thing I thought was going on was the old chestnut of confidence and the imposter syndrome, that someone can have all the experience and all the education in the world, but to ask them to stand up in front of a group of people and present or to sit at a boardroom table and share their ideas uh, is a really, really scary thought for some people. Um, Amy and I studied uh, creative arts together and so both of us connect really easy to that creative process and the fact that there are tools and techniques that anyone can tap into to conquer nerves, to be able to feel confident in talking to people and to hone your message. So we together we put together a, a one-day workshop and I invited a group of, uh, we had eight women attend from the club and we talked to them about uh, why the journey we'd got to and what my hunch was. And, you know, you could just see the nodding happening around the table. We worked on their confidence. We talked about the paths of leadership, that it actually was there and these are the avenues you can tap into. And then the third ingredient, which I think was um, the best ingredient we could offer, was we showed them the skills they already had. You know, if, if I had to get out on a boat on the water, I would be petrified. Yet these women are out there in terrifying conditions. They're having to think so quickly on their feet. They're excellent communicators. They're having to strategize about what their next role is. Their resilience is unparalleled. They had all the leadership skills of our top leaders that they weren't able to apply them necessarily to the workforce or to a club environment. So it was a real aha moment. And the end of the day, the feedback was just fantastic that we'd, we had hit the nail on the head with why these women weren't transcending. And so um, for us, we now like we've embedded that program within Blegari and we're trying to um, roll it out to other clubs and potentially to other sports. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, we share a similar passion and I've just been through the same process of running a triathlon young women's leadership program and it is a lot of it is just about unlocking the potential they have they're very talented people 
and it's just giving them that belief and confidence and as you say show providing that that journey so you know we bring in different female leaders so that they get to see ah they have been through the challenges they did feel the same when they were younger but they overcome that and this is what opportunities have come about because of that yeah it's so special and now the ideas they bring to the table are fantastic i feel like we've really created two-way dialogue with our members now yeah i love it i love it your innovation curiosity seems like a perfect fit for your drive as a serial entrepreneur why did you decide to establish your own companies and projects i have a desire a creative desire i think to take on multiple projects at one time i'm not sure whether it's a good or a bad thing yet uh, but for me it's really important to uh, work feeling meaningful and i want to take on different projects and surround myself with people i guess in a different sphere uh, it's taken a while to understand what makes me tick and why I make those decisions to often take on too much. Uh, but for me, entrepreneurial spirit and the startup um, environment is just so exciting. And the people who generally turn up to start a new business or to embark on a new project, they are just um, amazing people to be around. They're passionate, they're engaged, they're bringing um, often some crazy ideas to the table that we then have to harness into a, into a structure. So it's more of a personal desire for me to surround myself with that, with that environment, I guess. Light Minds Create is, an, is a really interesting business. I love the tagline, you've got this. Who is your target market? My target market for Light Minds Create is anyone starting a new business. Generally, we tap into creatives who have huge talent but often don't have the business background or the business skills to take their idea forward. So Light Minds Create was championing them to really go ahead with that idea and to trust themselves and to trust the process to offer uh, a medium where they could connect with others doing the same thing and to learn from those who are slightly further ahead in that business journey. So you created some milestone cards and, and business tips to go in your little packaging as well. How did you, so what was the process around say developing the 16 milestone, milestone cards and what actually was, uh, what content goes on those? Uh, so I worked with um, my co-founder Ebony who runs a Red Hill Candle Company which is a very successful candle company down on the Mornington Peninsula. And at the time, I'd been working on Light Minds Create for about a year. And we literally split the cards up. I said, I need you to write eight cards that are meaningful for you, and I'll do the same eight. And both was found that they just flowed. It was almost reviewing the year that we had had and the things that most inspired us in our own business journey uh, and putting them onto paper. Um, to connect with some of the inspirational quotes and the motivational quotes that were meaningful for us. When you're stuck in your little box of an office with no one else around as a, as a business owner or a startup, you need to know that someone's got your back or uh, that others are doing the same thing as you are. And so I was really trying to put all of that and all of that feeling into a little pack that someone could take home and put those cards up on their wall and to also connect through the website and through Facebook with others on that same journey. 
So how do you manage multiple entrepreneurial projects, working as a general manager and raising a young family? Oh, it's tricky, Craig. I wish I had the golden answer. I think the best, the thing that works for me is that at various times I have to turn projects on or off. I can't do them all at once and I have to trust in the fact that those projects will have new life injected into them at a certain point in time. But I am yet to meet someone who can manage all those projects successfully at one time. Uh, so for me, that's been my best approach and to really... I guess feel comfort in the fact that my kids are so incredibly young and this time will be very short. So they have to be my first priority, uh, probably followed by my full-time job. And then what else do I have time with that's going to fill my bucket during the week? So what other habits do you have that you incorporate to ensure that you free your mind, recover with purpose and, and have enough energy to do everything that you do? Do you know, I've recently uh, reflected on that a lot and made quite a number of changes. So uh, I don't know if you want to share with your listeners, but we were meant to record this podcast some time ago and I wrote to you and said, I'm just so burnt out, I need time out. And that continued to spiral, I think, for a few weeks until I had the good fortune of having a holiday already booked in. And we took our family over to Japan, to Japan for the Rugby World Cup which was so far removed from reality. Uh, you know, there was no email, no phone. Uh, we were in a completely different culture that we were having to navigate uh, with three small children that it was such an eye-opener for me to um, change some habits and restore the balance in my life and to restore it in a way that helps me. I can't just keep reading the textbook, textbooks of what makes a great performer and how do other people balance it. Uh, so when I got back from Japan, I really just had a clean sweep across the table and the things I've implemented that have made a difference are I'm only allowed to have one coffee a day because I just cannot function on more than one coffee. It, it sends my adrenal glands into haywire and I talk too fast as I'm doing now and um, it dehydrates me. I have to drink two litres of water, um, which I wasn't doing. I'd get so busy I'd forget to drink water. Um, I have to go to bed early and respect my natural alarm clock despite the fact it doesn't align with my husband's who's, you know, a night person, I'm a morning person. And to find moments within the week, even if it's just an hour, where I get quiet time and it's not working on the business, it's not working at work, it's actually turning everything off and just reading a book or reading the newspaper. Um, to, I guess, give myself a pep talk that uh, I need to park my ambition for a little while, that... You know, where, where is it all leading if you're burnt out at the end? And so that's what's making a difference for me now. I think everyone else is very different. Very good. We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the very first time? Well, I'd never been to Japan, and let me tell you, I've actually never enjoyed a rugby match until I went to the Japan World Cup. Now, my husband would be horrified because as part of our marriage vows, he was going to do yoga and I was going to go to, you know, try rugby, rugby, enjoy rugby. He has dragged me off to countless matches and I could not have cared less. It was always more about the location. Whereas this time, 
I was really able to connect with the experience with the players and the way it was delivered over there was just something so special. Um, to see my daughter's face light up when we score a try and to for her to start understanding how the game works far better than I ever will uh, was just so meaningful to, um, yeah, to, to have that experience. What is the one question that you would love to solve? For me right now, um, I don't think there is enough play and enough emphasis on creativity in the workplace. I think that we spend so much time focused on leadership, output, productivity, and um, I don't think we give our staff enough time to have um, a little bit of silence, um, an ability to play with ideas and um, perhaps do things differently. Our workplaces are so busy and so steeped in how we've always done things that sometimes it's easier to do that with it and you're not getting the best innovation or the best experience for your members. So I'm yet to solve that experience for my own team. Of, you know, how do we inject more play and creativity on a day-to-day basis? Um, so if someone could help me with that, that would be amazing. <laughs> At Active CEO, we're passionate about making a difference in people's lives. So we like to leave them a call to action. What is one piece of advice that you ha- that has been shared with you over the years that you would love to share with our listeners so they can help improve themselves in the future? My one piece of advice is always do what you love. Um, you know, in the early days when people said, why are you doing theatre, you'll never make any money? My answer was because I love it. And I think when you love something enough and you're passionate about it, you're generally pretty good at it. And the money and the... Um, you know, the opportunities will flow as a result. Um, when you love something, you have a greater impact on others and an impact on the work that you're doing. You shared some real gems today and some great ideas and you, you have a really good reflection on your life so far. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, LinkedIn is the best way, I think, which is uh, just Amanda Jacobs on LinkedIn. And obviously, uh, there's my website for anyone interested in facilitation or coaching as well, um, which is amandajacobs.com.au. Amanda, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I I love your passion, your energy and your excitement that you bring in the work that you do and the things that you love. I love that piece right at the end there where you talked about it's so important to do things that you love. And if you do things that you love, the, ex, you know, the, the rewards will come with it. You've taken mm. your passion in theatre and that taught you a lot of life lessons around leadership and how to develop out teams and projects. And you've taken that into a whole new world of entertainment and sports. To experience working on events at such a global scale as such as the Olympics is amazing and you just sort of take that in your stride and you kind of it it comes very natural to you I loved how you did your elevator pitch and you succeeded um, (laughs) even though you're probably scared and nervous and uh, and you probably got out of there shaking I'm sure for the next five or ten minutes um, but to, to take that on board and take that initiative, and I think we need to see that a lot more in people, and especially you know, talking about females as well. The, you have great skills. 
you have so much mm-hmm. to offer. And so we want to see those new leaders come to the fore. Your reflection around recently, how you felt you're a little bit burnt out. So you made that choice to say, hey, not, no, I'm not going to do the podcast right now. Let's extend it out a little while. And, but I first need to get myself right. And people will let that go for far too long. And it's so important to look after ourselves because it's not just you, but the people around you that need you with high energy and high performance all the time. So it's important that you get that recovery, you look after yourself and you make sure that the environment you set allows people to really be successful and thrive in what they do. So thank you very, very much for your time today and sharing your amazing story, some wonderful insights and some great lessons that people can take away and help improve their life. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for bringing such a fantastic podcast to the forefront. I, as you know, am a regular listener and uh, recommend it and really enjoy it. So well done. On this week's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about your main job is to develop talent. Leadership development is a vital ingredient to company or organization success. As a leader, your main job is to find and nurture that talent and then develop it. How are you observing and then developing talent within your environment? Remember, identify, nurture, develop, and challenge the talent within your organization and ensure that it is aligned to the internal motivation and purpose. That is the important ingredient here. It must be aligned to their internal motivation and greater purpose. If not, they will struggle to connect and they will move on easily. Keep building those leaders, develop them out. Thank you for listening to a brilliant conversation with Amanda Jacobs. She leads with empathy on episode 62 of the Sports People Recruitment Active CEO podcast. Have you ever felt lonely, isolated, and there is no one you can speak to as a leader? You are not alone. The loneliness dilemma is something that many leaders face and the biggest issue they encounter is not always having someone they can confide in. As a leader, there is an overwhelming responsibility, pressure to appeal calm, and consistently deliver results. If you let loneliness set in, it will impact your job performance, sleep patterns, stress hormones, behavior, and even white blood cell production. At Active CEO Coaching, we take the loneliness away from CEOs and leaders by providing a sounding board and helping you identify support groups to join, balancing home and work life, and understanding that vulnerability is actually a strength. To learn more about the Active CEO Coaching and how we can assist you, please do not hesitate to contact us about breaking the CEO code and the leadership well-being and performance framework by contacting Craig at NRG the number two perform.com or go to the contact page on the www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO Podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. 
That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.